Welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast that's a platform for mothers who are artists and creatives to share the joys and issues they've encountered while continuing to make art. Regular themes we explore include the day-to-day juggle, how mothers' work is influenced by their children, mum guilt, how mums give themselves time to create within the role of mothering, and the value that mothers and others place on their artistic selves. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter, and a mum of two boys from regional South Australia. You can find links to my guests and topics we discuss in the show notes, together with music played, how to get in touch, and a link to join our lively and supportive community on Instagram. The Art of Being a Mum acknowledges the Boendick people as the traditional owners of the land which this podcast is recorded on. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest this week is Sally Rippon. Sally is a best-selling Australian author and illustrator living in Melbourne with her three children. Sally was born in Darwin and grew up in Southeast Asia. As a young adult, she studied traditional Chinese painting for three years in Shanghai. And this inspired her first novel, Chen Zi and the Foreigner, which she started writing when she was just 19. Sally is Australia's highest selling female author and has written over 100 books for babies, children, young adults and now adults. Her widely popular books are beloved across the globe and have sold more than 10 million copies in 18 countries. Sally loves to write stories with heart and characters that resonate with children, parents and teachers alike. Sally's books for children include the popular Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack series and the highly acclaimed children's novel Angel Creek. Sally's first book for adults has just been released called Wild Things. It's about how we learn to read and what can happen if we don't. Sally set out to write the book that she needed when her son first started school, a mix of personal experience, research and interviews with specialists, advocates and neurodivergent adults. When Sally discovered her child was struggling to read, she assumed it would sort itself out over time, but she couldn't have been more wrong. Her son's dyslexia and ADHD went unsupported for years, leaving him further and further behind his peers and labelled as difficult by an education system that couldn't easily cater to neurodivergent kids. By the time Sally learned how to advocate for her child, it was almost too late. Sally's hope is that this book will help readers understand and better support neurodivergent kids to thrive in a world where they may not easily fit. In September, Sally released a picture book co-written with musician, author and disability advocate Eliza Hull called Come Over to My House. Inside, readers are welcomed into the homes of seven families who identify as deaf or disabled. The first of its kind, this picture book is not only important for disabled people to see themselves represented authentically, but also to start useful conversations in the classroom and at home. The music you'll hear on today's podcast is from my ambient music new age trio called Alemjo, and that comprised of myself, my sister Emma Anderson and her husband John. Thank you again for listening and I hope you enjoy today's chat with Sally.
Welcome to the podcast, Sally. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you and to meet you today. It's really exciting to be here. Thanks, Alison. You're a best-selling author. That's pretty exciting. And you've been writing for 25 years. You've written 100 books. That's quite prolific, isn't it? Like, I mean, my maths, four books a year, give or take. Yeah. Well, look, there have been some really busy periods. But also, I guess what I probably want to say, and I think a lot of artists out there would relate to this, is that I've been published for 25 years, but I've been writing since I was little. Yeah. So yeah. I was that kid that was always in a corner reading books, drawing, making my own books. So, yeah. So I think, I think I'm sure you imagine that that's something... Um, that a lot of artists would say, and I and I suppose it's the same for you too, is that it still feels a little bit surreal for me. And I don't think of myself as a su successful author or a best-selling author because really all I'm doing is exactly what I did when I was a little kid and I get paid for it and I can do it all day, every day. So oh. it doesn't feel like a job. It just kind of feels like this incredible dream come true. Yeah, that that is awesome, isn't it? To be able to just literally live out your dream every day and yeah because that's something I, I do talk to my guests about like how did it start yeah. where did it come from were you influenced as a child growing up did you have people around you that were really heavily into book yeah definitely so we moved around a lot as kids because of my dad's job we moved about every two years and we mainly grew up in Southeast Asia a little bit of time in England as well um, but the most important aspect of that is that we would spend a lot of time in hotel rooms, on airplanes, you know, in airports. And this was long before the internet or iPads or anything like that. Mm. So my mum would have to give us books to read. And when we had run out of books, because they're heavy to carry around, she would just give us pencils and paper and we'd make our own books. And I really credit that along with a couple of fantastic English teachers and art teachers as being the support that gave me the confidence to think that it was something more than just something I would do at my craft table, but something that I could potentially do that other people would want to look at as well. So mm. I think I was really, really lucky that I had adults around me that believed in me, supported in me, teachers that would read my stories out in class or art teachers that would really push me to go further. Mm. So yeah, I think that was a huge part of, of me just having the confidence to go ahead. Having said that, my dad wasn't so supportive of me turning out to be an artist. For him, that was a little bit like saying I was dropping out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I was good at school. And so, and he he went to a very, um, not a very wealthy school in Adelaide. You're in South Australia, I just saw. And so <laughs> yeah. he was the only kid in his year level to go on to university. Um, it was quite a rough school he went to. And he went on to be a civil engineer. So he worked really hard to put his daughters through private school. And he, when I told him I was going to be an artist, it was like, he just couldn't believe it. It was like, you're going to waste that private school education mm, on becoming yeah. an artist. For him, that was like saying I was just dropping out. But um, he's so proud of me now, you know, and I think mm -hmm. partly it was the encouragement of my mum that supported me. But I also think there was part of the grist to the mill that, was important coming from my dad too because I think I wanted to prove something to him to myself that no it wasn't just this kind of uh, alternative way of saying that I didn't want to go and get a job it was actually yeah. artists are people that work hard you know they're dedicated to what they do and um, you know and potentially they can make a living from it so mm -hmm. in some ways maybe if I'd only had support and no one kind of with some nobody to push up against maybe yeah. I wouldn't have driven myself so hard 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like that balance between the two worlds, almost like the devil's advocate sort of spurring you on saying, oh, you can't do this. And you're like, hang on a sec. Yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I'm so stubborn too. So if you tell me I can't do something, <laughs> it just makes me want to do it more. <laughs> oh, that's funny. When you were talking about your art teachers and your school teachers, I've been reading your book, Wild Things. Thank you for sending me the copy too because I've, I've really resonated and I'll, we'll talk a bit more about that in the future, but oh, in the future of this podcast, um, <laughs> in a moment, I meant to say. Um, but, yeah, when you said your teacher, it was like she just art uh, was with a capital A. It was like a proper subject, not something just to sort of bludge between, you know, science or maths or, you know, the serious subjects. I'm putting them in air quotes. Um, and that's massive, isn't it, to have that support of someone you can take it seriously. Like you said, you can make a career out of it. It does take hard work like anything, but, you know, to have that option, you know, presented to you in, in your sort of formative years when you're so influenced by things. Absolutely. And I was very influenced by her too. When I look back on it, I think she was probably only quite young at the time, although when you're a teenager, anyone over 20 <laughs> seems old. But um, I think it was her first teaching year and she was very alternative. She was quite tall and thin and she was always dressed all in black. She was, you know, quite goth looking and she was a bit snarly and unapproachable. Um, yeah. And so any of the students that did kind of just turn up to art class and treat it like it was just um, some, a slack off period, she really treated them with a lot of disdain. But because she could mm -hmm. see I was really into it, she really took me under her wing and she would take me to exhibitions of contemporary artists on weekends. Yeah, she right. used me to Hockney. She took me to the Hockney exhibition. Some other weird Melbourne artists with weird kind of collage stuff with dead mice stuck on the canvas. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the fact that she was so excited and so inspired by it. And also that mm -hmm. she saw something in me as well. You know, she could see that 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 art mattered to me and so even though I was in this very conservative mainstream girls school I think she just liked the fact that there was that little ounce of rebel that was um <laughs> yeah which is the the grain of all good artists I think <laughs> <laughs> just pushing up against things just a little yeah. and yeah um when you were talking about your teacher there it reminded me of I had two art teachers they're husband and wife and they were just the most laid back hippie people you'd ever meet and some of the most interesting music I ever listened to was in was in Mr Van's class he just used to put on like America I think they were called like that the horse with no brain or whatever that weird song and my son actually is just on his Spotify playlist it popped up and I'm just like oh the memories of the coming back from this song it was just it was bizarre but yeah I love I love, I love that, that song too. Oh. I love those. I'm like, and it's the horse with no name. That's what it is. The horse with no name. Yeah. Yeah. Because he but can't I think remember. Your, your title's oh. funnier. You knew what I meant, though. So that yeah. was good. Lisa. Least... I like uh, the sound of your song better, actually. <laughs> Maybe I'll write a song about that. Yeah. But oh, it's true. Sometimes. And I also think because there's part of going through adolescence that you want to separate from your parents. And so if you're lucky enough that you do have other adults around you 
that are doing interesting things, they can be extraordinary role models and they can really set you on to quite alternative paths to the ones that your parents had laid out for you. And so they're really vital having good role models around you at that age. Mm, That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Your first book was uh, a book that was actually written for young adult readers. Bit of a mishmash in the way I built my career because mm-hmm. um, I guess because I hadn't grown up around artists, it wasn't something that I had considered was going to be the direction I'd go down. And so I read a lot, I drew a lot, I had great teachers, but I didn't actually know any grown-up artists. And so um, I've just always written and drawn for myself, but it really... I guess I'd always kind of thought that that was just something that was my own passion, my own drive. But um, I went to live in China for a few years. So my dad got a job there and I went to study over there um, while he was living there, studying traditional Chinese painting. And at the same time, I was writing lots of letters home to friends to really try and explain what this extraordinary city of Shanghai was like at a time that had just come out of the Tiananmen Square riots, it was transitioning from very conservative uh, communist values to more progressive values. And I was in the art school. So all the art students were part of all those um, those demonstrations. And they were the ones that were really out there, you know, um, pleading for change and wanting to, to open up the, the country much more to the West. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was writing all these letters home. And eventually, you know, there were I started to find, to make them into short stories. So I'd always written stories, but I found that this was a way that I could take all the things that were happening, but also kind of almost elaborate on them and, and potentially put in some history and some characters. And so this is what just in a really weird way eventually became my first young adult novel. And I was 19 when I started out writing it. So I didn't really know yeah. that what it was going to be either. Yeah. But um once again, I would say throughout my life, I've been blessed to come across incredible mentors. And so I, first of all, um, how did I get into that? That's right. I thought it was going to be a novel for adults. And mm-hmm. I went to see, I thought, oh, Penguin Publishing. I've, I've heard of them. I know what <laughs> I know them. I looked them up and where they were. And I managed, I don't know how I managed to do this. It was a long time ago to get an appointment um, with a publisher there who's a wonderful woman who's now become a close friend called Erica Wagner. And um, she had a look at what I was writing. She said, I think this is young adult. You know, I don't think this is adult. And first I was a bit insulted. I thought, oh, what, you're telling me I'm a teenager? I was, like I was 22 or something. <laughs> um, but then she gave me three books. She gave me a book called Sleeping Dogs by Sonia Hartnett. She gave me Looking for Ella Brandy by Melina Marquetta. And she gave me um, Peeling the Onion by Wendy Orr. And I took those books and I devoured them. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if this is young adult literature, I'm in. I'm interested. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I realised how much it was pushing up against boundaries and how much it really was exploring that really tumultuous time of adolescence Um, and it wasn't the teenage literature that I'd grown up reading which was all about periods and boyfriends and pimples it was (laughs) really really pushing the boundaries 
So I was working on that at the same time I was still drawing and painting. And the first book I actually did manage to get published was a picture book. Mm -hmm. But in the background, I was working on that young adult novel. So even though uh, that wasn't the first thing I had published, um, I was certainly, that was the first thing I was writing. So they, mm -hmm. everything kind of arrived in, in succession after that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome story. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I haven't read that book. I'm not actually... That's a, an old one, don't worry. <laughs> uh, I'm not a massive reader. I just, I don't know. I, I, have, I find it difficult to sit for long periods of time <laughs> and read. And I know that's really bad to say, but I do make an effort when I, you know, really want to read something. Um, but yeah, it's like you've got the two, the aspects going together, like the, the, the children are becoming, you know, young adults, they're growing up. And then you've got that change of China at that time. So that, that's a really sort of awesome combination, really. Did you sort of realise that at the time you're really onto something with that? I think I had a gut feeling that I was because um, my, I had a couple of uh, best friends at the time. One of them was a Chinese student, um, a man called Chen Si. And um, he was very politically minded and he also um, took me into parts of China that I may not have been able to access on my own as a white Westerner. Yep. Um, and then the other person who was a big influence on me ended up becoming my boyfriend and then eventually the father to my two older kids. And he was also very kind of rebellious and, and curious and seeking adventures. So I had those two really great role models to really push me outside of my comfort zone. But also um, I was really able to see what it was like to be um, a young Chinese person, particularly a young artist growing up in China, as well as seeing the difference to how we were treated as expatriates and the privileges and doors that were open to us. So I don't think I could have written that book had I not had some really close Chinese friends and been part of the student body. Um, had I only just mixed in the expatriate circles, I, I think it would have been very um, superficial. And mm. so I was actually able to feel what the changes were happening in China from the perspective of other young people and the danger that a lot of them were under, even sometimes mm. by just being friends with Westerners at the time was dangerous for them. So, um, so those things I was aware of and those things I tried to put into the novel probably in a fairly naive way. But extraordinarily, several years later, I met another incredible mentor, um, the publisher at Text, uh, Penny Houston. And she had read that book and it had gone out of print. And she said, look, I think this was a fantastic novel and it's such a shame it's gone out of print. Why don't we give it another go? And so with her support, I did write another version of that book and went a little bit deeper. Now is a bit older a little bit more politically savvy, mm -hmm. I was able to really understand what the situation had been like with some perspective in the way that might have been. So I had the combination of both being submerged in it, but then being able to write it with a bit of perspective too later on. Mm. So yeah, I'm still really proud of that. But, you know, it's, um, it, it was, you know, when I considered that I started writing it at 19, yeah. <laughs> um, I look at that and I think, yeah, wow, you did that, amazing. Oh. <laughs> I did a residency in China at um, a very prestigious international school and the Australian librarian there just surreptitiously made sure that book was available on shelves for <laughs> you know, his young students so you know, <laughs> literature can change lives if, you yeah know, yeah and that's the thing in a country like that where things are so heavily controlled and and um 
yeah, to be able to sneak something like that under the radar would be awesome. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> do you keep up with what's going on in China now, like having been, you know, immersed in it? Do you sort of keep an eye on how things are tracking over there? Do you still have friends over there? Yeah, less so. Um for a couple of reasons. One, my dad lived there up until recently. So I was back oh, right. and forth visiting him quite a lot. And because yeah. all of the people he worked with were local Chinese, it was very easy to get an internal perspective of what was going on in the world. But since he's moved uh, back to Australia, plus he's married to this fabulous Italian lady who speaks fluent Chinese. And mm-hmm. so she was very much part of the cultural um the cultural hub of Shanghai in fact she had a newsletter that was called Maria's Choice and it would tell you which exhibitions you should go to and which films you should go to and she'd actually worked on um, film sets with um Chinese uh film crews as well so for example the Bertolucci film The Last Emperor um she worked on that one so both of those were people my dad and my stepmother were a great source of um information I mean obviously it's not the same as being a Chinese person growing up in China but everybody they worked with was Chinese so it felt like Mm -hmm. it was pretty authentic but they've moved back um, more recently I'm still in touch with Chen Si but he lives in Austria now and most of my Chinese friends it's very hard to communicate with because I can speak Mandarin but I can't read and write it Uh so unless we're phone call you know having phone calls which we don't really do um mm. more <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's really hard to keep track of where they all are and and where they're what they're up to but um a couple of them I've kept in touch with yeah mm. that's interesting it's like it's the country that's always fascinated me and I had a friend that she was a school teacher here and she went over for 12 months um doing like teaching in a uh what do you call them an international yeah. school yeah yeah and she she loved it but it's the sort of place I think I'd get quite daunted by it like I don't know it feels a bit like if you did the wrong thing you'd feel like you're going to get in big trouble or something you know like it feels well, I don't know maybe that's yeah. just for me because I've never been there <laughs> yeah yeah well that that's the thing with um often those great experiences that you can have like your friend did is that when you are employed there and you're an expatriate um you do get to live and um, integrate within the country to an extent, but mm. you're also very protected by your expatriate um, passport. Um, yeah. And I don't think Chinese, though, I'm happy to be quoted, um, I'm said I'm wrong on this, but I don't think Chinese people will have anybody who is born outside the country ever recognized as a Chinese citizen. I think that's no, unless no. potentially maybe you're from Taiwan or Hong Kong, then they're obviously, yep, yep. <laughs> you're, you're in. <laughs> yeah. But everybody else kind of has this very privileged surface existence. And we even knew that as students that, um, you know, when we were going out to nightclubs or places like that, often our Chinese friends wouldn't be allowed. And these would be local nightclubs. Mm. And we were. And so it's a kind of, in fact, to my dad's credit, that's why he ended up um, moving us out of Asia because we were, I was doing um, high school in Hong Kong and he didn't want us to live our whole lives kind of un- having this sense of entitlement, I think, just knowing that just because of the colour of our skin that we had become a bit untouchable, that mm. the rules didn't apply to us, that they did for the local people, that we, you know, we grow up often with maids and he didn't want us to think that that was the world's normality mm-hmm. so he wanted us to have a much um, simpler lifestyle 
you know, mind you, he still put us into a private school in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, but he didn't want us to think that that we had this assumption that everybody lived this way. And in certainly as expatriates, most people do live a very wealthy, uh, protected, bubble-like life. Mm, so, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and and often the darker sides of China are even withheld from locals as well you know often it's really hard even for locals to unless they make really good local friends you know a lot of that is hidden from them and so a lot of their people with disabilities aren't allowed on the streets or Mm -hmm. um, a lot of crime is shut down very quickly they have very tough measures on crime Um, so if anything you're safer there Mm -hmm. than you are in Australia because um, they don't you know Chinese are very very proud and they want the country to appear a certain way to the outsider's eyes. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I sort of didn't mm. think we'd, I mean, I want to ask you lots of other things, but I'm not going to because it'll become this, very political. It'll become the Chinese <laughs> episode. <laughs> it has the potential to get quite political. So we'll just leave that yeah. there. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. <laughs> So your book, Wild Things, which is awesome, by the way, and again, thank you for sending it to me. It's called Wild Things, How We Learn to Read and What Can Happen If We Don't. And like I said earlier, I really resonated with this because my son, he's got some learning issues. He hasn't been diagnosed with full ADHD, but the way they described him, and it was interesting in your book, you've got to pick like a little thing about this, describing the different types of ADHD. He's got the inattentive distractibility type. So as I was reading this, so many times I just went, oh my God. That's, that's how I felt or that's what I should have done or, you know, all this sort of stuff. So rather than me keep blabbing on, can you share in your own words <laughs> the inspiration behind your book? <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's lovely to hear how you've resonated with, with it. And that is partly why I wrote this book. So this was a scary thing for me to do. I've written for children for many, many years. Who am I to think I can write a book for grown-ups? But I... My son was struggling and somehow I let myself believe it would all kind of work itself out over time. So it was quite clear from about grade two that he was struggling to acquire the reading skills that his two older brothers had easily been able to do. Um, He did have a wonderful teacher in prep who alerted me to the fact she thought he might have some reading issues, but I completely dismissed her. I just thought, oh, you know, he's in prep, you know, they should just be playing with sand and water. What's the, what's the issue here? Mm. And so I let it go for too long. And I kept thinking, well, maybe he just won't be a reader. And so I'll write books that he wants to read. And so I wrote the Billy B. Brown series and tested them out on him. And then I wrote the Hit Pay Jack series. And I figured, that, you know, there'll always be something that will engage him. I don't need to worry too much about reading. You know, my two older boys love reading. I love reading. Maybe he just won't be a reader. What I hadn't taken to an account is how much reading affects everything. So if you can't read, there's very little in school that you can engage with and you lose the capacity to express yourself, to articulate mm-hmm. your thoughts. And of course, your self-esteem becomes completely crushed. 
So within primary school, he managed to get by because he had lovely teachers who could see the good parts of him and make him feel okay about himself. But of course, once he got to high school, the wheels fell off. Mm. And it was really, really hard to get him the support he needed. We don't, partly because somehow the school didn't want to believe that, that this was going to be an issue for him that he'd got all the way to the end of year seven before I realized he wasn't even handing work in. So mm. now we're in year eight and his self-esteem is worse. And so now, of course, his behavior is impacted. And so he's becoming a kid that has to get attention somehow. So he does it by, by playing up or by doing dumb things to bond with peers. And so now mm. he's becoming a, a kid that's a problem in the class. So we're now getting up to year nine and he is now completely disengaged from school and also feeling like teachers aren't on his side. Mm. So by now I'm in an absolute panic <laughs> because I spend my life, you know, traveling around the world, talking to kids and making them feel good about themselves and talking to parents about how we acquire reading and how to get your reluctant reader reading. And I thought I've obviously missed something here. You know, I, there's, there's a reason why my son has got this far and he's going downhill fast. So I thought I've got to research this. And so I just started asking people, tell me how you teach your child to read. Tell me what's going on for your child. I started tapping into support groups. And all of a sudden I found this whole lot of information out there. And I couldn't understand how I hadn't been able to access it before. It's all out there, but it's really hard to find. And I was talking to lots of parents like yourself who was who were saying, you know, my child's struggling in school or my child hasn't been able to pick up reading skills or, or whatever. And I so once I tapped into these support groups, um, one of them suggested that I also have him assessed for ADHD, which is a very common thing among their children. And I really just took him to the doctor just to, you know, write that one off. I thought, oh, no, he's not ADHD because somehow people have got in their minds that it's just those noisy, ratty little kids that mm -hmm. climb up the wall in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't like that. He was a daydreamer. He was mm -hmm. sweet. He was, you know, wanting to please. And so sure enough, he was diagnosed with ADHD. And so I just thought, how is this all coming to me now? And now he's 15, he's disengaged. He feels terrible about himself and he's talking about dropping out of school. So then I went around to all my friends and I said, you've, did you know this? Or you've got to know this. Or, and I met more and more people like you that were saying, you know, wanting to share their stories too. So I thought, I've got to put all this into one place. So mm -hmm. that I could not let everybody else I know go through all the struggles that my son and I had to. And so I thought, I'll go to my publisher and I'll talk to her about this idea. I really didn't think that she'd take it on. And she said, yep, we'll do it. But it took me two years to sign the contract yeah. <laughs> because I wasn't convinced I could do it. And yeah. the biggest part of it was just getting over that self-doubt that I think a lot of artists do, you know, that, mm -hmm. um, you know, who am I to think I can do this? You know, I'm not an expert in the field. So I did a huge amount of research, read some really dense books on neuroscience and a lot of books on how we acquire reading skills and what happens in our brains, talked to a whole lot of experts. The amazing thing about writing a nonfiction book is you can call up anyone. Because <laughs> I'm, writing, I'm writing a book. Can I interview you? And yeah. they say, yeah, let me get my diary out. And so yeah. I spoke to the most amazing people. I spoke to this extraordinary woman over in the US who'd actually changed, um, who'd actually changed the... Uh, schooling system that her child was a part of by mm -hmm. just getting a whole lot of other parents on board. 
So when you tap into these support groups, they're extraordinarily powerful and they're emotionally charged. So there were so many people wanting to support me in writing this book that the days when I thought I can't do this, I've got to drop it. Let's just go back to writing for kids. I thought of all those people and I thought I can't let them down. All these people have already shared their stories. All these people have already given me their time and their expertise. I just have to keep pushing through. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. And um, even when I handed the first draft to my publisher, I was sure she'd say, oh, no, actually, look, you know, I'm not so sure about this. But she loved it. And the thing that she responded to the most strongly was the memoir elements of it. And she said, you know, all the scientific stuff is important, but the stuff that I really, that really sings with me is all the personal stuff. So of course, that's where you feel the most vulnerable. And so I just kept expanding on those bits. And then in the very later drafts, running all of them past my son to check that he was comfortable with all of them as well. And so interesting stuff came out of that as well, because when I'd read something out that had happened five years ago, he was now older and able to say, actually, that wasn't my experience of it. So he was able to then share what it had been like for him. So it became almost this beautiful combination, this beautiful moment where I was able to actually understand my son more by doing the research into this book. And this was all done during lockdown as well. So we spent a lot of time together. (laughs) But I think had I not done the research for that book, I don't know where my son and I would be at now because we'd Mm. become very disconnected. Um, I had become really just full-blown anxiety, stressed out, not knowing what was going on, what was normal, what wasn't. And now I've got this beautiful young man in my life who has this extraordinary, unique brain, kooky, yes, but um, <laughs> but really beautiful, empathetic and feeling good about himself, you know, yeah. after feeling so crushed by the system. Oh, I think having yeah. spent that, all that time working on the book and running lots of it past him, he feels good about himself. He knows that, yeah, he's mm. different. That's cool. Yeah. And does he does he kind of also think, can he see that by sharing, like you sharing his and your experience that it will help others? Is that something that he sort of takes in as well? Yeah, look, I think he's probably still a little bit young to really get the implications of that. He's only 19 mm-hmm. and a half. So yep. um I I have said to him again and again, look, by us being vulnerable and sharing our stories, potentially we can. you you know empower people to be able to support their kids better so they don't have to go through the same things as us so he understands the intent Mm -hmm. whether he really understands it in the way that I think potentially only a really panicky struggling parent (laughs) could really understand it who knows because Mm. you know I think when you're a teenager you're the center of your universe you don't really know or under or nor should you know how your behavior is impacting the people around you you know I, one of the things I recognized is how much I projected onto him, you know, how much I saw him as responsible for my anxieties rather than me responsible for my anxiety. And that was a huge, so most of the growth has come from me letting go of who I thought my son was and actually really working out who he is.
towards the end of the book, you've got a chapter called Things I Wish I'd Done Differently. But one of the points is accept your kid is mm. different. So that's a pretty powerful thing. Like you said, you've got that shift. Did you also find then accept yourself too in that you can only, like, you can't blame yourself, you can't beat yourself up, um, you can only do what you can do and accept that this is, it is what it is kind of thing without giving up, you know what I mean, but accepting that you can't go back and change things or that kind of thing. Was that something for you as well? Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it. I I know that I'm quite hard on myself about it and particularly because it feels like, and I might be wrong, that everybody else seems to know how to do this advocacy parenting stuff, you know? <laughs> and in all these support groups, you know, they're really, it looks like they all know what they're doing. They're starting much younger than I did. People seem to be so much more aware and onto these things. And I felt like somehow I just didn't didn't get that memo, you know, <laughs> when yeah. I should have got it. Yeah. And so I do feel like I could have done better. And I do feel like my son's trajectory would have been very different had I done differently. Having said that, I don't think I was very supported in the um, education system. You know, there were times when I felt like the things that, uh, you know, I was getting assessments done and I would take them to the school and they would be filed away and nothing would be done about it. Mm -hmm. Or I would say, you know, I'm, I have a concern here and I'd kind of just be dismissed, you know, teacher would say, no, 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 it'll be fine. It'll sort itself out. And first of all, what I want to say is that's absolutely not the fault of teachers is that one of the things that teachers who I've also interviewed for the book have told me is that, you know, they, they can't be expected to recognize and identify what kid needs what, you know, what issues they may have, whether it's they haven't had breakfast or whether their parents are splitting up, they have a mental health condition, or they're neurodivergent. You know, they're not counsellors, and they're already mm. under so much pressure. But I guess I had thought that that was something that the school would be able to handle. And I recognise now that as, you know, as hard as it is, it really does fall back at least on the parent to be the advocate for the child and to ed educate themselves. So I definitely could have done mm. a better job of that. But I also want to say that it's never too late. And this is the thing yeah. that I'm really proud of. You know, that there were times when my son was sneaking out at night and getting up to all kinds of stuff. When And I was single parenting and making a lot of these decisions on my own. And there were a lot of times where I thought, I can't do this. I actually, I'm not up for it. I don't have the skills. But there's no choice. You actually don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> you can't it's clock off. <laughs> no one else is no one else is going to do it for you. I just had to step up and I had to recognize that yeah, I stuffed up in the early days. I hadn't done enough. But th today is the day we start work, you know, roll mm. your sleeves up. Yeah, that's it. Work. Yeah. I upskilled, I read a lot, I got a lot of support, but I also did um, a couple of years of counseling course as well and I learned to become a better listener. So I learned mm -hmm. to actually uh, listen more talk less so I could get to know really what my son needed um yeah and he's I'm so proud to put this young man in the world now he's, <laughs> he's a good person <laughs> yeah well that's that's so lovely
Yeah, there's, with Alex, he I feel the same in, in lots of different ways of your story that Alex, um, he was always the kid that was like distracts others, can't stay on task. You know, every single year level, whenever we'd get his report or we'd talk to the teachers, it was the same thing. And I kept saying to my husband, but what do we do? Like we, we've tried all these strategies about, you know, different, some teachers were really good at giving him more focus and they'd put a special desk near them and or, and sort of every now and then they'd, you know, he'd be staring off into space and they'd bring him back and others would just completely disown him because they'd be like, well, that kid doesn't want to learn. I'm not going to have anything to do with him, you know. And I can understand, you know, my background's in early childhood education. I've been a, a, a um, kindy, te- not kindy teacher, but kindy worker and a childcare worker for nearly 10 years. So I get I get what it's like to be in an educational setting. Perhaps not exactly what school's like, but I, I, you know, I have a bit of an understanding and I don't like, same thing. I don't blame teachers. They've got enough on their plate as it is. And so I'm saying to my husband, you know, we keep getting the same things, the same things. Like, what do we do about it? And everyone was like, oh no, he'll grow out of it, blah, blah, blah. And looking back now, I know there were signs. They were all looking us in the face, but no one ever said, have you ever thought about this have you ever thought about having him tested have you you know and it was like you were just left to flounder because you don't know what you don't know being our first child first child going into the world you you think people are going to tell you things you know people who know stuff should help us but if they don't then you, you have no idea what you're doing and it wasn't until he got to high school same thing with your son the literally the wheels fell off and um that's when we got the help we needed and we things started looking up for him because we actually had the tools um, and the people around us that could suggest things. So it's like everyone just thought he'd just grow out of it, like a little boy just playing around, he'll be fine. And he did to a degree, but I also think he learned to hide it as well. I think he got really clever. Like your son, I think people that have, have challenges get very, very, they're very intelligent people who are able to mask things and do things in other ways and teach themselves in other ways and learn other ways. Yeah, I think that's such a great way of explaining it because, um, you know, and this is why I think the more we talk about it, um, the better it is. And what we have in this generation that our parents didn't have and certainly not before them is social media. So now we have the capacity to hear marginalised voices tell their own stories. So I don't know if you saw the press club talk that M. Ruciano gave, extraordinarily moving about being a late diagnosed ADHD. I follow a lot of neurodivergent activists on social media. I tap into disability support groups. So we have that now. We have the capacity to educate ourselves and look at behaviour as just being um, information. Whereas before, all these kids, like my dad also had a terrible time at school. He now suspects he's potentially neurodivergent himself. My younger sister as well is really convinced she's dyslexic. They gave her glasses. You know, people didn't actually know. So these people grow up feeling terrible about themselves. And some of them will go on and be resilient adults. Some of them don't. Some of them end up in our, you know, justice systems because they can't engage in school. They hang out with other people who have issues engaging with schools for a myriad of reasons. Mm. And they go down a really dark pathway and, and often don't come out the other side of it like our kids are lucky enough to do. And yeah. that's why if I have anything come out of having published this book, I hope that it starts conversations like already you and I are starting to talk about the experiences our children have gone to through um, I'm getting several messages a week from people I've never met 
yep. saying this is my story, you know, or this is what's going on for my kid. And I think this is how we make change. We mm -hmm. shine a light on all these things so that then the burden is not placed on individuals, not just on the teacher or the parent, but everybody knows, oh, that kid, you know, maybe has this particular learning style. So let's find a support network for them in this way. Or one of the most brilliant educators who was knighted for his ideas, Sir Ken Robinson, has an extraordinary TED talk where he talks about this young girl in the classroom, and this would have been back in the 70s, I imagine, who couldn't sit still and everybody thought there was something wrong with her. Mm -hmm. And the psychologist left the room, turned some music on, and she got up and danced. And he said to the parents, there's nothing wrong with her. She's a dancer. You know? <laughs> And I think yeah. the next book I want to explore is also the idea of the artist as well, because the artist is most likely a person that hasn't connected with the mainstream, that has found mainstream education really difficult to engage them in certain ways. And so mm. they, whether it's um, unconventional people who are drawn to art or whether we stay unconventional because we're able to express ourselves in a way that you can't do if you're a real estate agent. <laughs> um, you know, I'm interested to explore that further because I don't think that's a coincidence that, that artists, neurodivergent people, people who have strong feelings, you know, may struggle with their mental health. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of overlap with all of that there. But unfortunately, schools are set up for one kind of learner. Yeah, and that has to yeah. change. Oh, yeah, but this this is a conversation I could have a hundred times over. It's just the frustration that you get, like just the simple thing. Like last night, um, my son, my little boy who's seven, he was looking through last year's um, school magazine, and he noticed some of the kids that were on a special page, and they were the ones that had had won the academic awards for their year level. And he asked me what it meant, and I knew where it was going. And I said, um, these are the children that were judged in a certain way to be clever. And he said, does that mean I'm not smart? And, and I knew where it was going. I could read it like a book. And I said, no. I said, it means that for the certain tests that they did to work out who was clever in this certain way, these kids were the best at that. And I said, and there's other tests in the world. And it wasn't like a test. It was more other ways in the world that you are determined to be, um, you know, clever in other ways. And he, but he kept on with it. He said, does that mean I'm, I won't win an award? And I said, darling, I'll remind him he's already won some awards for being kind and, you know, for, for perseverance and that kind of thing. And it just, it, straight away, I just flashed in my head like this moment I remember in kindergarten when my, my eldest son, who's, you know, Alex, he's got the issues, went to kindergarten for the first time. And this was before I was working in the childcare and education area. And I took him to kindy and they all had to sit down and they all had to sit with their legs exactly the same crossed in the front and they all had to sit up and look at the front. And I just thought it's like, I don't know what the word is. I could like, I could see the light go out in him. If, you know, he couldn't even sit the way he wanted to. He couldn't express his, himself in the way he wanted to just by being present. And I just, I, I walked away from there with tears in my eyes because I thought you, you're just squashing these little people right from the beginning and now when I'm like, I, I work in a kindy now and there's some children that 
you know, you can tell that they're feeling unsettled for the way they're being told to sit or whatever. And I'll, I'll bring them over and I'll say, just stretch your legs out a bit, you know, give them a bit of a shake, you know, and in a hiding sort of way. I hope none of my kindy cohorts are listening to this. You know, you should be able to sit however you want to sit. You know, it just breaks my heart. And that's the start of it, the very start of it, of the, con- the conformity that's expected for the next, you know, 13, 14 years of their lives. Yeah. It just breaks and my it- heart. And it's crushing, you know, your story breaks my heart too, because, you know, that's all of these brilliant minds mm-hmm. that are just kind of being pushed through this one system that was created 100 years ago to make factory workers, docile factory workers. Yeah. And so, you know, what I would stress again is there are extraordinary teachers working within this, this repressive system. And if you're lucky enough, your kid will find a teacher that can just see something in you, you know, keep your mm. self-esteem intact. But, you know, like I ask in my book, is this really the best we can do for our kids? You mm. know, the, to spend 12 or 13 years of your most formative years of your life in a system that makes you feel broken or wrong or a failure, you know, mm. some kids will thrive. Some kids will come through and feel great about themselves. Yeah. Um, but others will, you know, just be left completely broken. And so many adults I interviewed about the book. There's a young, a beautiful man who I call Tony in the book that told me about his school experience. And it's so common, you know, just to feel completely, and some people never recover from that, just to feel completely mm. crushed by that. So that's also where I feel like when we start to understand what my friend Eliza Hull has taught me about the social model of disability, when we start to understand that it is actually a person's right to be able to express themselves authentically and to be able to set up their environment so that they can thrive, then schools will be more accommodating towards kids that can't sit with their legs crossed, you know. And mm. there are a lot of autistic activists, self-advocating act- activists that are now really loudly and proudly saying, do not shut us down. You know, we mm. need to move. We need to stim. This is how we emotionally regulate. Yep. Stop trying to make us not like us. We want to live full, authentic lives. Yeah. And this is what we need to do for all the kids coming through schools. Yeah. And look, it's I don't know what that will look like because, of course, it's great to bombard ideas into the, you know, into the ether and not know how to put that into practice because, you know, like we were saying before, there's a teacher working, one teacher with 25 kids yeah. and each of them had their own specific needs. Yeah. But a lot of the feedback teachers gave me is that even just lowering the student-to-teacher ratio, just mm-hmm. even more aids in the classroom or yep. more external things to be able to self-regulate. So one incredible school that I talked to um, has a massive, uh, what they call the shed, and it's a big workshop space and kids with um, difficulty in staying within the classroom, neurodivergent kids or kids with learning difficulties have factored in spaces during the week where they can go and do stuff in the shed where volunteers mm-hmm. come in they do some cooking, woodwork, um, you know, basket weaving, whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's no stigma attached to spending time in the shed because it's a cool place to be. Yeah. And other kids yeah. can go to the shed as well. So it's so tricky because, yes, sometimes it does require taking these kids out of the classroom and finding something they're good at. Mm-hmm. And all I remember myself, the kids that got taken out of the class, you know that there's something different about them. And there's stigma attached to that. Mm-hmm. My son hated that. He yeah. felt like that meant that he was stupid. So there's there's got to be more creative ways of doing it so that we can offer mm-hmm. 
different ways of making our kids feel good about themselves. And that's yeah. where parents are really important to, to just to see, like you're doing, to see that it's a big picture and all the successful adults I interviewed who are neurodivergent said the one thing that got them through was finding something they were good at. Um, and maybe that's art, maybe that's sport. For one guy, it was sailing. You know, he yeah. became Victorian champion sailing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. You've got, so, you've got to have something that's yours that you feel yep. good about. You know what, <laughs> Alex is, is playing the bagpipes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> he is like, oh, my God. Like the kid that, like both my husband and I are musical and, uh, you know, always had music in the house and sang and played. And for years I'd be like, do you want me to teach you this? Do you want me to teach that? No, no. And I was, I think it was, you know, out of, you know, rebellion against mum. I don't want mum to teach me something, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden, remember the um, that Squid Game, that TV show that was big about uh, 12 months ago, the theme song yeah. of that, like the do-do-do-do-do-do, this kind of little tune on a recorder. So all of a sudden Alex decides he wants to play the recorder and I'm like, okay that's great so I, I didn't really take him seriously so we I ended up buying him a recorder because the kids had a recorder when they were little and I pulled it to pieces and hid the pieces around the house because I hated it so much <laughs> I'm like there's a there's a keyboard here there's a guitar there could you play something else anyway so he loved it learned heaps of songs on it and I thought I can't have this sound it's issues with particular sounds it really triggers me so I bought him um a tin whistle an Irish tin whistle so a nicer sound um it was in a different like different key so it challenged him but he loved it learned all these songs and then one day he just says I just I want to play the bagpipes and I've just gone oh Jesus like <laughs> could you not pick something a bit louder like <laughs> anyway so in 12 months this kid is is He's joined the local band. They've, I don't know, blow his, blow his horn, but I will. He's, he's, they say he's got the most potential of any kid they've seen, uh, you know, in a long time. He's picked it up so quick. And I'm like, I'm just so damn proud of him because he loves it. You know, he's always been a bit left of centre. He like, always liked listening to Scottish music or something a bit different. And I've always embraced it because I'm a bit like that as well. So, you know, um, and I just think, good for you mate like he's found the thing he loves and he's the sort of kid that won't necessarily try hard unless he really likes something so yeah we're, we're living the dream now with his bagpipes <laughs> well think of ACDC they had a yeah. bagpipe play and they were well, super cool yeah the other day we were watching the um AFL grand final and they had you know the the bagpipers come out for your the voice and it's like there you go mate and I've always I've also had someone online because we share a little bit on, on our Facebook say oh I'm getting married soon I'm going to need someone to play the bagpipes like there you go mate you know and people love it like it's a sort yeah. of if, if you hear it sort of off in the distance a bagpipe it's you know you get the hair sort of you know yeah. you get it get um, goosebumps whatever it's an amazing instrument it's just so, not so amazing when it's literally just outside <laughs> my door when I'm trying to do things in here yeah. but yeah. Anyway, long story short, he's found his thing and he's he's thriving. <laughs> yeah, good on him and good on you for being open to that as well because I think, you know, that that is a really important thing that I think parents need to understand is it may not be the thing that you thought it would be. It might mm -hmm. be something completely different. Um, but, yeah, if you can give them the space and the support to find their thing and, you know, also be proud of it. You know, I do that as well. I say this thing like, oh, you know, I don't want to blow my own horn or, you know, I don't want to show off or anything. But the kids that have had no successes and then to be extraordinary at something, it's mm. of course we should celebrate that, you know. Yeah. 
So, you know, I think good on him. And yeah. You know, good on you too. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> You're listening to The Art of Being a Mum with my mum, Alison Newman. You spoke earlier about how people connect with you, people you've never met. You get the feedback that others are going through it. Um, In your book, you mentioned about an experience where you were booked to speak um, in front of a whole lot of, was it buyers, book buyers? Um, Yeah, booksellers in the US. Booksellers, yeah. And Mm -hmm. and you had, you know, your your script, I guess, of what you were going to say. And then you started to get these little nudges in your mind that you really wanted to share your son's story. And you did, and it went amazing. And, you know, the feedback you got from people afterwards talking to you for, you know, so many hours. Like, it's it's incredibly wonderful that that there are people like you that can share. Because I know there's a lot of people that can't, but I just want to say how awesome it is that you are doing this. Like, it's it's just really great. Thank you. And look, I think I, I, you know, you and I, we do have a platform. And as scary as it is to be vulnerable, I think that's also such a gift. Every time I've heard someone who has a platform, for whatever reason, when they speak openly about something vulnerable. So, you know, when I was a teenager, it might have been someone um, famous coming out, or Mm -hmm. more recently, it's mental health or even more recently now with somebody like Emushiano spotlighting on ADHD, how mm. powerful that is and how connecting, and then how it does make people feel like that, that they can, you know, look at that person up there that looks like they've got it together, so successful. They also have all this stuff going on too, so I'm okay. Yes. And I yeah. just think that's such a, you know, occasionally people say to me about my book, oh, it's very vulnerable. You know, yeah. you put a lot of yourself out there and I get this little panic. And yeah. sometimes I lay awake at night going over bits and I think, oh, <laughs> no, what are people going to think of that bit? But I think what's oh. the point of creating art if you don't make something that matters? You know, there's so much froth out there anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that I hope would speak to you as a practising artist and about your podcast being about practising art particularly as a parent, you have so little time to waste. Mm-hmm. Why Why do froth? Why not do something real, vulnerable, deep, authentic, connecting? That's what mm. art can do. Yeah. Now, that's awesome. That is such a great way of looking at it. And I, I certainly feel that way. It's like if you're going to do it, go big, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Before you get interrupted look, by I've bagpipes. Had, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've had no pushback. That's the amazing yeah. thing. I thought yep. that by now, I mean, it's only been out a, a few weeks, but I thought there would be someone that would take me to task. But mm. all I've got is people thanking me. And so I think it was worth it. It was worth doing yeah. that scary thing yep. because people see that you're you're trying your best. Even if I don't get everything right, I'm just, I'm trying my best. This is mm. what I can do right now in my stage of life. Yeah, absolutely. Now that's awesome. It's really interesting, your book, 
Now, you've named it Wild Things as a reference to that amazing children's book, Where the Wild Things Are. And throughout your book, you've sort of weaved in these characters from other books and then analysed them, for want of a better word, and brought them into the 21st century and saying, how would these children be, um, what's the word? Diagnosed. Diagnosed. That's a good word. <laughs> how they'd they be perceived in the if they were here now, yeah. what, what would we say they had? Yeah. <laughs> what of a better way of saying yeah. it. That's really interesting. What, how did you come up with that idea? Because it's fascinating and it's it's really um, it's really interesting, actually, oh, <laughs> when you do it like that. I'm glad to hear you say that. I think it's partly because partly it came from my own um, anxieties when I first started out writing the book that people would see my name on the book as a children's author and think, why is she writing a book for grown-ups? So I thought, how can I connect what I do and have done for 25 years, this world I'm passionate about, children's literature, with what I want to bring to an adult audience? And I taught writing for children for a long time at RMIT in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. and, every, and I always ask my grown-up students to bring in a book from their childhood. Every time someone holds up a book that meant something to them as a child, the reaction that they have to that or the memories that are locked into that book are visceral. You know, we have such a deep connection to our childhoods. We forget that sometimes, and sometimes just bringing an object or a book or something from your childhood can trigger all these incredible feelings and memories. So I thought all these books that we grow up reading, you know, we celebrate these characters and we love them and they become part of our lives, they become part of our culture. So many of them are naughty, <laughs> would be pigeonholed as naughty. Yeah. And because one of the keys to writing good literature is you need conflict. You know, a story doesn't, you know, there's no such thing as a story where just everything happens, nothing happens. You know, mm. the story is created by conflict. It's created by adversity. It's created by all these things. And your main character, you've got to give them some agency. And usually that happens by bucking the system, challenging authority, making changes. And that can usually only happen if you're a little bit of a rebel. So most of our most beloved characters are pretty rebellious. Mm -hmm. So we celebrate these characters in books. But when our children show the same traits, we really struggle with it. Like, hold on, you're supposed to sit down and do what you're told. Don't stand mm -hmm. up and talk back to me. <laughs> and yet the books we're giving them are all about people challenging authority. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted adults to to want to think about that, to think about what it is that we expect from our children that's maybe unnatural or maybe not even particularly healthy, mm. but also to tap into our own childhood selves because everything we experience as a child, we're, we're experiencing for the first time. So we see the world with eyes open and full of awe. And that's what you have to do as a daily practice as an artist. You have to see the world as if for the first time every day. Mm. And that's why people, when they travel, they often become creative because they want to take photographs or write blog posts or letters home because mm. everything is new and exciting that's what childhood is like so if we mm. can tap back into that childhood aspect of ourselves it's not infantilizing it's actually portal into this extraordinary well of creativity and hopefully connection and compassion for our own children like we're looking at what they're doing and we're thinking actually you know what I remember doing that myself as a kid maybe I shouldn't be so hard on them like I was a massive tantrum. I had terrible <laughs> tantrums as a kid. My mum had to bend me into the car seat to get me in. And yet, you know, when my own child has a tantrum, you know, that's that's intense. That's full on. And I had to try to remember how I felt to be able to have compassion for him. 
And mm. kids are also good to do that with. Yeah, it's a good reminder, isn't it? Because sometimes I think we expect so much of our little people. Like we just think because I'm an adult, I expect my child to be in this world and engage in the same level. And we forget, you know, their brains are literally wired different to ours. You know, they, they certain parts of their brains haven't, you know, finished developing till, I don't know, till you're 21 or something, you know, like it's massive. But yet we just expect like, I, <laughs> perfect reminder for me is like, I, I want my children to sit at the table and eat their tea. But do you think they will? Well, no, one of them won't. The other one's not too bad. But it's like fiddle with every single thing that's on the table. Try and hop off the chair 20 times. And so in the end, I just gave up. And it's like, I, I don't I don't want to experience this, um, this aggravation or this conflict at tea time. So now the two of us sit together and have our tea watching the telly usually. And the other two sit up there and have a chat. And it's like, it works for us. And yeah. I know I hear these people say, oh, we always sit around the table and have dinner together. And I'm thinking, geez, you must glue your children to the chair yeah. or your children are not like my children, you know, and just accept that. Yeah. Um, because when I was a kid, geez, if we didn't sit at the table, you know, you know, we sat at that table, yeah. um, you know, just accept, like, like you said, in, what, in your point, just acceptance, you know, and things don't always have to be perfect in the way that, you know, we think they have to be. <laughs> yeah. And I think also it's a really good point is that sometimes we just have to recognise how much is unacceptable and how much have we just conditioned to think is unacceptable. And yep. so the fact that you've gone with your gut instinct and chewed into your child rather than thinking, oh, this is how I should do it. Because I got caught up in a lot of shoulds because I had lots of friends with what seemed like perfect kids and yeah. my kids were doing everything in a different way yep. and so I had to stop thinking that meant that there was something wrong with my kid it was just that he's different and stop comparing myself to other parents or comparing to how I was or even just the social conditioning we have on what how kids should be yeah that's a big one that's something I've had to work hard on I think and also social media hasn't really helped that because you get to see, well, it's not really people's lives. It's the idea of the, the part of people's lives they want you to see. But, you know, it's like, oh, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. And as a mother, you know, that's just, it's like a minefield. Find amazing people to follow. Like you could just got to find the right people. Like you've got to follow disability mm -hmm. advocates, like the two Ps, um, those two mums that talk about um parenting kids with disabilities with such mm -hmm. you know gravitas and humor yeah. at the same time and um so you just got to find your tribe you've got to yeah. stop comparing yourself to the people that aren't like you and that was a exactly. big shift for me as soon as I tapped into other communities mm -hmm. I thought oh these are my people this is yeah where yeah that's really good Before I move off of Wild Things and onto the other book I want to talk about, I want to try and link this in. In my podcast, I like to talk to my mums about the concept of mum guilt, and I put that in air quotes because often I'll get a mum who just tells me they don't even know what it is and they had to Google it, and I think that's wonderful. You know, like it's, you know, everyone experiences things different and guilt or not guilt is one of those things. Um, and I noticed in your book a lot, and you did talk before how you can be really hard on yourself, Um is, has that been a challenge for you to not hold on to things and, yeah, you're nodding. Yeah, huge, 
Hugely so. And look, I think, I think the very first drafts that I wrote of my book, I just used as a blur, as a cathartic um, experience to get out all the angst and all the guilt. <laughs> and then I tried to pull it back more and more because it can become self-indulgent, you know, and I felt like, okay, now I've got it all out. This feels like my diary here. But now what's useful for other people? Is it still <laughs> beating myself up? Is it saying what a bad person I am? you know, potentially what we can do for each other as mothers is let each other off the hook. You know, you know, being open and saying, yeah, this is where I messed up. But you know what? That's just because I'm human. And mm -hmm. so I think part of writing this book was also letting myself off the hook, coming through that guilt um, that I think so many mothers hold, potentially fathers too. I haven't spoken to them to the same extent about that. Yeah. But I... Um, but I think we need to do ourselves a favor and just let each other off the hook and stop showing each other up and stop, mm -hmm. you know, openly laughing about the things we get wrong and supporting each other when when it's hard. Um, yep. I think that's building the tribe and the community and, and recognizing that, you know, we really are just doing the best we can. Yeah, absolutely. Because I actually think that <laughs> women and mothers are really bad at doing that to each other. Like we do it to each other a lot. And um, then we don't want it done to us. So I think if we could all just stop doing it, it would be wonderful. <laughs> but you can oh. do that even in a conversation. Like I remember in, uh, in conversations, because like, I feel like I'm trying to be aware. I think self-awareness is the biggest step. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would find myself in a group of other mothers, maybe criticizing somebody or something. But we can be the person that just says, you know what, I do that too. Or actually you know, maybe she's having a bad day or whatever. Mm. And, you know, we, we can arrest that, even if it does feel like a bonding thing at the time. It's not a really healthy thing to bond over. Yeah. Like we can find other things to bond over. Yes, that's <laughs> true. That's well said. Yes. The other book that you've recently released is with Eliza Hull and you've mentioned Eliza and I'm having Eliza on the podcast in a few weeks too. So I'm really excited about that. Right. Um, it's called Come Over to My House. Um, can you share with us, rather than me tell people, you share again in your own words, um, what was behind this book and how you came to be involved in the book as well? So I met Eliza through um, another one of your interviewees, Rachel Power. Who... Oh, I love Rachel. <laughs> So Rachel's a wonderful friend and she interviewed me for the first edition of her book. Um, the I think, I don't know what the most recent one is, but it used to be called The Divided Heart. I think it's now The Art of Motherhood or something like that. Anyway, exactly what you're doing, just finding other artist mothers, how are you possibly doing this thing and actually having an artistic practice at the same time. So <laughs> incredible book and I give it to everybody who's a practising artist mother. It's a brilliant book. It is. It's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, read it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, it should be shouted out at every episode because she's, yeah. she's a queen. Yes. And um, so she and I were on a panel with another couple of artist mothers and Eliza Hull was in the audience. So it was years and years ago before she even became a mother. I think she was thinking of becoming a mother. Mm -hmm. And she contacted me out of the blue and we just started corresponding. 
and we became friends. She's an extraordinary musician. I downloaded one of her albums and I had it on rotation in my car all the, every day for years, I think. Yeah. I love it. And so by absolute coincidence, after a few years, we um, both ended up in the same small country town. So I was still living in Melbourne, but I had a bush block just outside of Castlemaine in central Victoria. And she had not long ago moved to Castlemaine herself. So we just kept reconnecting because I really liked her. She really liked me. And she had brought out, she um, contributed a piece for the book edited by Carly Finlay, Growing Up Disabled in Australia. Mm -hmm. And she also edited a book on parenting, parents with disabilities and the um, challenges and the triumphs that um, many of these parents are happy to share. And she said that she had been thinking about writing a book for children, but it wasn't an area that she was very familiar with when I come on board with her. And being such a big fan of hers, I said, yeah, of course, you know, I'd love to. And she is the person I credit to helping me understand how disability doesn't have to be a dirty word. Mm -hmm. So disability, if somebody owns that word with pride, just like... um, Indigenous and African-American people are owning the word black with pride or potentially pride with pride, um, queer with pride, Um, then then it becomes something that takes away the stigma around that word. So a lot of active self-advocating people within the disability community will use that word as a way of saying there's nothing wrong with me, this is who I am, this is my community, but unless you create an accessible world, I'm not going to be able to be my reach my full potential. Mm. And she proposed that potentially my son was also disabled by his environment because if he was able to learn in a particular way, but the school wasn't able to support the way that he learned that he was also disabled. So that just blew Mm. my mind. And she explained that social model of disability. So we workshopped the idea of doing a picture book together where what the aim of it is to normalize disability. We just happened to be invited into, I think, oh, I can't remember now, seven children's homes. Um, the child might have a disability or the parent might have a disability. Some things are done a little bit differently. Some things we do the same. But really, it's about just um, taking away the stigma around that word, opening us up into the world of these extraordinarily creative people who live with disability and inviting into their homes. So there was a book I grew up reading in the 70s by Dr. Seuss called Come Over to My House. Mm-hmm. And it was, I remember I loved it as a child. I read it again and again. And we were invited into all these homes of people who lived in different countries around the world. And, you know, Japan or India or whatever, everybody had a slightly different house, ate slightly different food, but they all liked to play the same kind of games. So we've aimed to do the same thing with this book. We're invited into these homes. There'll be some similarities, some differences, but, you know, there's nothing scary about it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Talk yeah. about talk about the similarities and the differences and normalize and destigmatize those words. Mm. That fear is the thing. I think it's people don't know what to say. They don't know. I think what you've written in the beginning of your book about how people with disabilities like to be referred to, whether I've got a disability, I'm a person with a disability. You know, I think we're scared of offending people or saying the wrong thing. And it's like if we talk to people, if we talk to each other and we say, how do you like to be referred to? What would you like me to call you? And lots and lots of listening. And that's where we do have access to um, extraordinary stories and people via social media, people who weren't able to um, access platforms to be heard before. Mm. And so you can politely ask if you can follow 
um, an activist on social media. You know, Carly Finlay is a very outspoken activist that speaks very, um, uh, very confidently in the area of disability. And so there's lots to learn from this stuff. Some mm. of it's just undoing all the conditioning that we've had growing up and understanding mm -hmm. how, you know, what, what the world is like for people that don't live with the same kind of privilege we do. And the best mm -hmm. way we can understand that is just by lots and lots of listening. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of amazing people to follow online that you can learn heaps from. Mm, <laughs> we can all we can all educate ourselves it's you know and you know that's where the it's a it is a delicate balance because you know th there will be people that will say well it's not for us to carry the weight of having to educate everybody you know we don't want every single person coming up to us and asking you know mm -hmm. how did you lose your leg or whatever yeah, and so yeah. that's what we're hoping with this picture book for children is that it starts communication it starts conversation sorry around different forms of disabilities and also the kind of questions we can ask because children are genuinely interested, curious and naive. And yeah. so if we can have these conversations and we can say, oh, do you, you know, do you think that man will feel comfortable with you just staring at him all the time? Um, you know, how would you feel if you were invited to a party and you couldn't get in because your wheelchair couldn't get over the step in the playground or, you know, yeah. actually creating empathy, compassion and the more, we can hear the stories from people themselves rather than people like me talking on their behalf, um, <laughs> yeah. the more important that is. And that's why, of course, it's fantastic you've got Eliza on your program because... Um, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting. have lots to say in that regard <laughs> and she's a wonderful person. Yeah, and uh, yeah, her music. Like, I, I, I don't know how I didn't know she also was a singer and a, and a songwriter and, like, mm. wow, she's amazing. Yeah, so... If you're listening, Eliza, looking forward to chatting with you soon. Yeah. back to you as a mum um do you feel like you want your children to see you as Sally that does all these things and you're not just their mum and I'm putting that in air quotes because you're never just a mum um but you know that your children see that you've got <laughs> all these other elements to you than the caring role the mothering role yeah I think that's really important and in the um years where I did carry a lot more guilt than I allow myself to now mm -hmm. I used to worry a lot about working a lot because I worked really 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 hard and so often I might be away on tour or I might have to after dinner go back into the studio to work or and it would sometimes mean that I'd miss some school things or um you know and then I would feel bad about that but I think all my working mothers can relate to that mm -hmm. but I guess what I hoped is that what I'm role modeling is that if they have a female partner in the future, there won't be an assumption that it just falls on one person to do the domestic labor or the childcare, that I can model what it's like to be an independent person in the world. I've always been financially independent. I've always you know, worked really hard to forge a career for myself. And so even though I have sons, not daughters, I think it's as important to role model that for them mm -hmm. as it would be as if I had daughters. And, they're really proud of me now. You know, my oldest son's 29. All my, well, actually not all my sons, my two oldest sons um, 
in the creative arts. So the oldest one is interested in writing and filmmaking. The middle one is um, a visual artist along with a million other things. My younger son's into math, so I'm not quite sure how to connect with him over that. But that's pretty creative too. But you know what they've seen is that you can be loving, you can be nurturing, you can be dedicated to your children, and you can also have space for yourself. And that's actually what it is to be a whole healthy human in the world. You know, nobody should have to completely sacrifice themselves for anybody else. That's not healthy. Mm. Um, you know, we can be full people in the world and also be amazing parents as well. And so I just feel like I had to role model that to my kids and get over that angst that I would carry about not being there at every assembly or mm. being really terrible at baking cakes. I'm just couldn't <laughs> do the cake stall. <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I was always good on the stall. You mentioned briefly earlier how that your son Sam inspired you to write um, a couple of the series that you that you've written. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So before Sam, it became clear that Sam was struggling to read. Um, I wrote the kind of books I liked to read as a child, so sophisticated, you know, plots, um, you know, dense texts you know elaborate vocabulary all of those things because I was a very good reader and I found reading easy and accessible so they're the kind of books I set out to write mm -hmm. um partly from my own ego as well because I wanted to show off what a good writer I was <laughs> so those weren't ever going to be books that Sam was going to be able to access so and I call him Sam he's not really called Sam but for the purposes of the book and all the publicity he's Sam yep and to give him some privacy and so um the only books that he was able to read were the school readers and they they serve a very important purpose they are there to teach kids to read but they often don't have storylines or character development um and they're often a bit boring mm -hmm. so yep. i thought the challenge for me would be to create books that would use that kind of language and vocabulary and sentence structure but actually have proper character development and plots and so forth and I tested them all out on Sam. So I would watch him and if I lost his attention, I would shorten it or I would mm -hmm. speed up the story or whatever. So they're all road tested with past him. And then because those books reached so many kids, what that message very strongly sent to me was there are a lot of kids out there like Sam who may not be dyslexic, but just may find reading really hard. So yeah. everything I've written from then on has been for those kind of kids because not many other people are doing it. I think there's a lot of humor around for kids. There's a lot of um, kind of cartoon comic books for kids and they're all really, really important too. But to explore something that goes into an emotional terrain or perhaps, perhaps stories of friendships, um, it's harder to find those in a lot of the really, really fast paced accessible books for kids. Mm -hmm. So I try to do that in everything I write to make sure that it works on lots of levels. So the Polly and Buster series, for example, can be read on the surface as a story about witch and a monster playground story. But the further you go into it and the more you want to explore it with a child, 
the more you can see that it's actually a story about apartheid, you know, potentially a story about the Trump era, potentially <laughs> a story about racism, you know, depending on how deep you want to go with your child. Um, but I trust that children want complex stories. They may not be able mm. to access them with their reading skills, but they have extraordinary minds. I mean, I remember the thinker that I was as a child. That's the one skill that I've been able to hone throughout writing for children is that I can transport myself back to a six-year-old really easily. And I remember how I thought, how I felt. And it's not less than we do now. It's not mm. as sophisticated. But if anything, I think I felt things even more keenly as a child than I do now. And so I don't want to write down to them, but I do mm -hmm. want them to have something they can access for themselves. Mm. Yeah, that's really thoughtful. That's really cool. Um, <laughs> that's very clever too, to be able to write like that. And also because your first, well, not actually your first book, but the book when about being uh, China, about that was written for like, you know, the young adults. And then you can write for little people too. So that's, and you've written for adults as well. Like that's very versatile, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can play instruments and I can't do that. Oh, stop. <laughs> I tell you what, I hold musicians oh, up dear. as the as the the top um, talent as far as I'm concerned, as far as artists go, because it's like musicians can hold a world in their heads. It's not just words, but it's all these different sounds that come together to create one sound. And for me, that is just like the epitome of of um, creativity. It's extraordinary. Oh, I'd never thought of it that way. Mm. That's probably why I get so distracted all the time. There's so much going on. Oh, that's funny. I've always found this fascinating and I have this I have many conversations with teachers over the years about how how do we actually learn to read right the, and I and I didn't actually really know there were these two clear different sort of forces of opinion working against each other um about I always wondered whether you actually like picked up each letter and sounded out each letter and that was how you got it or whether you just recognize almost like how you recognize logos or symbols that you just remembered that's how that word looks and it, it was fascinating when you, you wrote in the book that even now when we read as adults like fluent readers we're still doing that almost like the phonics way in our, while we're reading and I thought gee that's interesting um so rather than again me try and explain could you share <laughs> Some intelligent thoughts around that. Yeah, sure. So one of the amazing things that came up in some of my early research, and this sounds like such a simple thing, but it is actually mind-blowing, is that while we are our brains, while we are born with brains that have the capacity for oral language, that is, while we're inside the womb, we are actually learning the tone and we're learning, we're developing the skills to be able to speak just from listening to our mothers, our mother speaking. So we have a French speaking mother will be attuned to French when we're born. Our bilingual parents, children are attuned to two languages and so on. So we, we are born with the brains 
that have the capacity to be able to use oral language because oral language is 100,000 years old. Written language, however, is only five and a half thousand years old. So we actually don't have a space in our brain when we're born that is set up for reading. So we have to actually rewire a part of our brain to be able to be a skilled and fluent reader. So the way that this is done is that part of the brain that is used for visual processing combines with another part that's used with oral. And this is a very, very simple way of just describing very dense neuroscience, but essentially it's recycled so that we create what this very famous um, French professor has called the letterbox. His name is Stanislas Dehan. You can find his talks online, he's extraordinary. We can now look inside brains because of neuroscience and see what's happening as we acquire reading skills. And so that's how they've been able to actually scientifically prove what happens in the brain when we learn to read. So before we were able to do that, like you say, there was a couple of schools of thought about how it might be that we acquire reading. And one of them was the whole word approach that we do. We see a word like an image and we store it and that um, then is retained and retrieved when we need that word. But we now know that in fact, what we're doing painstakingly as a child is breaking words down into a code, sounding out all the little um, pieces of the word. So PH sounds like F, you know, the O can sound a few different ways. And so we do that painstakingly as a child, but the more we practice that, the more that wiring happens in our brain. So it becomes automatic. Mm -hmm. But if we're not taught those skills, which the broad umbrella comes under the umbrella of phonics, um, but it's also sort of as decoding where we actually break the word down together to create meaning, then we can potentially get by for a while because for a while there will be certain words that we can recognize up to a certain extent or we can guess by using the cues in the book um, by looking at the pictures but mm -hmm. once we get to about grade three that's when we when you actually see that kids who haven't acquired those reading skills really plateau and flounder and that's what happened with my son mm -hmm. so some kids will seem to pick it up naturally or by osmosis by not being taught to decode but some kids won't so the, the the people who argue for teaching phonics from early on the argument is that while some kids will manage to learn to read just by doing some guessing and, and managing to um, create some kind of reading skills on their own without being specifically taught mm -hmm. there will be many that aren't so this is a way that guarantees that all kids will be taught to read now if you're dyslexic you may need extra support and extra practice outside of the classroom. Same skills, but you can you may need up to four times the amount of practice than a non-dyslexic. But even dyslexics can be taught to read if they're taught with this very systematic phonics instruction. So somehow it's, you know, I didn't have a stake on either side. I knew nothing <laughs> about it. I read the brain science and it really just comes out time and time again for people who know this stuff. I'm just sharing what I've learned, that that is the way that we can guarantee that kids won't fall through the cracks. Mm. And um, somehow there are still arguments about it. But for me, you know, this might be controversial. It feels like <laughs> listening to flat earthers argue now. Mm. Yes, there was a time we couldn't know if the earth was round, but now we know what happens in the brain as we learn to read. And the best practice of teaching it, we just all need to get on board. Because yeah, if we yeah, don't, that's it. kids will go through school like my Sam did without learning yeah. how to read and everything will fall apart mm. from there. 
So we're in a transition phase. There's a lot of extraordinary mothers that are lobbying to have um, screening done really early on to be able to pick out kids that are struggling to read. There are, unfortunately, it becomes political, but mm -hmm. there are, you know, um, there are lots of people now who are advocating to have one form of teaching taught across the board to ensure that all kids are taught to read. Having said that, um, the argument against phonics is that people will say, oh, it's boring, it's dull, it's like what was done in the 1950s and it'll turn kids off reading. Yeah, it can seem a little bit boring and dull, like learning, you know, the notes for piano, for example, in the very early days, that can seem pretty mm. boring and dull. But yep. meanwhile, you're playing music to them. So they're thinking, oh, one day I'll be able to do that. So of course, while kids yeah. are learning to decode by using this explicit systematic phonics instruction, you read them beautiful literature. So they yeah. know what they're going to be able to access once they develop those skills for themselves. And that's what parents can do at home. So yeah. the worst thing that any parent can be told now, I realize, is that if you read your, to your child enough, they will just pick up reading because that is awful for a parent that's done everything right to hear and their child still doesn't read. Mm -hmm. So they need to be taught and you can support that at home by reading to them from birth, but it's not your responsibility to teach them. Yeah, that's it. And then it takes out that that horrible sort of the guilt-riddenness that a lot of us mums feel when it's like, well, what did we do wrong? I thought we did what everyone said to do, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting in the book too, um, there was the example, there was a couple of examples um, around that phonics was, uh, you know, I can't think of the exact time period, but in America at one point they completely changed how they were teaching, am I saying this right? And then all of a sudden the decline like was measurable because they changed how they were teaching. Sorry, can you make sense of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of those stats are coming out. <laughs> Lots of those stats are coming out now about, um, you know, people are looking for all different reasons as to why we have a society that reads less, that, that kids are getting to the end of primary school and not being able to have basic literacy skills. There are lots of speculation around that, mm -hmm. but all the research is showing that a lot of it is just because they haven't been explicitly taught. So um, I do give examples in the book of some schools that have changed the whole teaching program around and gone from the lowest rung of the NAPLAN results in reading to the top rung. And these are in disadvantaged areas. They're not ones that are getting tutoring outside school. Mm. Um, so it's also a way that we can ensure that it's not just the kids that grow up in educated, privileged, financially um, secure households like my son get the support they need but all kids, even in non-English speaking backgrounds, in um, apartments where maybe they're sharing a, one computer amongst, you know, five kids, or, mm -hmm. you know, every child needs to be able to give them the same start in life. That's what our public ed education system is about. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to ensure that all kids can access literacy skills that they're going to need is by teaching them in this specific way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's my yeah. high horse. Yeah, good, good, good job. Um, and I'm doing it on behalf of other people because obviously I can't know if Sam would have been a fluent reader had he been taught differently. You know, it's not a sliding doors situation. I can't mm. go back and do it all again. But from every single expert I've spoken to and all the research that's come out and all the books I've read, it points to that. Mm. Yep.
There's a quote in there by Astrid Lindgren, who's an extraordinary um, Swedish writer. She was extraordinarily successful in her um, time. And she just has this beautiful quote that I put in the back of the book that give your children love, more love and more love and the rest will come. And I think, you know, it can be easy to project our idea of success on our kids or who we think our kids should be. But I think in the end, if they can go through life knowing that someone just loves them completely for who they are, that's about the best thing you can do for them. And I think that's the most important thing I've tried to instill in my son is that he's a good and worthy person, no matter what he chooses to do with his life. Mm, yeah, that's lovely. That's beautiful. And, and I'm going to add a quote to that. I can't remember who said it in the book, but it said, trust your kid. They will show themselves to you and be ready to love who you see. I thought that was a really good one. That was me. That was you that said that. That was me. Bravo, you. Well done. Well, thank you so much, Sally. It's been such a joy chatting to you. And thank you for sharing your story and your son's story. And yeah, being a part of, of the chat today, it's been lovely. Uh, it's been really nice chatting with you. I feel like we could probably keep going for hours. Okay. We probably have to break out the wine soon, I think. <laughs> I won't say no to this. <laughs> Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review following or subscribing to the podcast or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum.